next guest is one of my favourite players of all time. I was so excited for this interview and I wasn't disappointed. Ulster legend, former Port of Ireland's best ever backroom combinations, British and Irish Lions tourist, perhaps most importantly, inventor of the Ferris wheel pizza. If you haven't already worked it out, my next guest is the legend Stephen Ferris. This was recorded a few weeks into lockdown. Hope you enjoy it. Stevie, how's it going? How's lockdown treating you? Uh, flip. I was getting on okay, like the first couple of weeks, and then I think it was about not the weekend, just there. The weekend passed, and I just wanted to go out, have a few drinks, go for yeah. go out for dinner. And my head, <laughs> head was wrecked, like, and yeah, then yeah. only so much drinking you can do in the house and killing <laughs> yeah. time. No sport on the TV. I'm sick of I watching know. like bay runs or Ryder Cups and yeah. US Open. Open, so it's doing my head in. What about yourself? Yeah, I'll say I'm like missing the sport, working from home at the minute and doing a lot more of these podcasts and stuff. So I work in a day job and then I'm doing uh, podcasts yeah. and articles and stuff on top of that. So, up to be fair, I've been more, a lot more productive being stuck indoors because uh, no distractions. But I know what you mean, like, need to, need to get out and I do miss the sport as well. Like, I don't know what to do with myself, like, so but yeah, it's it's okay. So um, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, no bother, uh, no bother. I was, I was chatting to Robbo. I was chatting yeah. to Robbo and Winker Watson. Yeah. And Robbo said he'd been on with you. And then I think I went into my messages and then you had messaged me. Uh, so, bye. Yeah, so both of them were on at the same time. It was so dead on. So I messaged Stephen and he came back to me and was like, I'll get Mark, Mark on as well. So I had the two of them at the same time as class. Like, so what we'll do, if it's okay with you, is sort of work chronologically sort of through your career yeah. even if you want to go over a couple of things about how you got into rugby and stuff so that's the first thing I was going to ask you so how did you get your your passion for rugby and did you have any sporting heroes growing up um like first of all when I when I went to primary school and never even thought about rugby touched a rugby yeah. ball uh, probably watched the Six Nations like when it was on just because it was on or passing by but yeah, it was probably just going to friends and because because it was compulsory, like in the games, then I had to take part. And then because yeah. it was big enough for my age, liked a bit of rough and tumble, um, I just kind of get into it. Um, when did I kind of first have a passion for it? Like, geez, that's that's a probably a, a hard one. Maybe yeah. a medallion uh, year in school. I was just playing it because uh, it was good fun. It was good opportunity to meet people. Uh, went on a, a mini tournament over to Scotland with Lisburn. Uh, it was good crack, just getting away from home for the first time, that type of thing. And then medallion year in France, we had a pretty good side. Um, and we come up against, I think, Sullivan in the quarterfinal or semifinal. And we had a good side. Like, we probably would have went on and, and done well in the final. Like, yeah. um, and that's when I started to get probably a bit more competitive. and realized that i was you know probably one of the better players on the pitch every single week yeah. and I, yeah. I was playing down high or lauren Grammer or bally claire it's always seemed to be and then of course you know yourself at school like people start to talk about all their players from other schools like so there's a guy called johnny pedlow who went to grosvenor and he's now working for <clears throat> um castle ray college and I can remember like going and playing Grosvenor and everybody talking about this big guy, Johnny Pedlow, and he's massive and he's this and he's that. And he, 
I went, we went away and in the first five minutes scored like a try from about 60 or 70 yards out and he tackled me in the corner and I scored a try and we won like, I think it was maybe 7-3 or something. Yeah. Um, I, I played brilliantly like and then I was just like, this is, this is starting to go well. Yeah. Um, I know that that's probably medallion to answer yeah. your question. Sorry for rolling on. <laughs> I No, no that's, that's interesting. So, even from medallion, you sort of knew yourself. Like there's, there's something I'm doing which sort of puts me at another level. And what was the moment then you actually thought, not only am I quite good at school, but I actually have a chance of making it as a professional at this game? Um, it's not a good question. Like uh, I was playing for friends, first 15. Uh, I played a few games. I'm not sure if it was legal or not in fourth year for the first randomly. And then it was fifth year against BRA at home, and we got beaten 35 points to seven or 37 seven, something like that. And a lot of the BRA players in that year, so you had like it was more or less the year above, so it was like Chris Henry's year, all Malone lads. Um, and I made a turnover on our own line, I made a break of about 60 or 70 meters, and then passed it inside the guy called Davy McLean, who went underneath the sticks. And we were winning 7-0. And I was like, flipping heck. And I remember being shown on the news. Uh, and, of course, the old VCR was, like, <laughs> plugged in. Like, and was like, oh, here you are. Here, you are, here we go. And there's me with a scrum cap on. Um, about 30 kgs lighter than I am now. And I got a dash like a bitch. Drew the fullback, passed it to Davy, And Davy was the fastest player in our, in our year group. And away he went and scored. So it was uh, it was probably about then that I realised that a, a small bit of potential. Barnum McGonagall then tried to get me into the school system. Of course, I was only hanging around fifth year. Left, went and played the youth uh, kind of scenario that, that you know about. And then a couple of man of the matches there, a couple of good performances. And then before I knew it, I was in the academy at Jordanstown, travelling yeah. from home here in McGarry, going to Jordanstown. And then when I was in like the schools, Come together with the youth, with the use. There only was a couple of lads from the use, and you're still up here. You know, you're still the top two or three players of the Ulster under 21s, Irish under 21s, and that's kind of when you know that um, you know there might be something there. But to be honest with you, even when I signed my first contract for eight grand a year, like it, never did I think I was going to become a professional rugby player for the next ten years. Yeah, yeah, just kind of. You know, was freewheeling and just seeing where it went. Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's probably a good attitude to have. I know. I was going to say, like, you mentioned, like, there's always a guy, a few guys in your year at school. I had that myself thinking back. It was probably Adam Macklin my year at school, who was an yeah. absolute beast. And you've got, even more recently, there's, like, James Hume. I remember all, all sort of guys talking about him, uh, being like, he's, got, he's the next big thing. See, at your, yeah. when you were playing at school, were you, like, were you pretty big, or were you just like were you very quick, or were you both as 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 you were as a professional? Obviously, you were both as a professional, but were you equally not equally big? But were you um, a bit of a wrecking machine at school as well? And uh, uh, that, that's <laughs> um, the first part. So, you were you like that at school? Like, was everyone talking about I, you? I probably ran ran around people a lot more in school. <laughs> I probably should have done a lot more than uh, yeah, professional yeah. career. <laughs> trying to run through people, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like when it came to 100 metres and stuff in school, as I said, there was this fella, Davey McLean, and 
I, he went to the same primary school as me as well. Right, right. Believe it or not. And it was always me or him that was winning the 60 or 80 or 100 meter dash, whatever it was in school. And we, I was always in the relay team, the 100 relay team. And you know, I was always maybe, you know, at that age level, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten kgs heavier than everybody else. So, yeah. yes, you probably wouldn't have looked at me and looked at Davey and went, geez, he's way, way bigger. But I did have a bigger frame. And if I did stand beside those lads now, I would be much bigger. So, yeah. back then, I probably didn't realize it, but I was big, uh, big for my age. And then, fast enough, like, uh, in, in school, uh, ran the 400s, 200s, and 100s, and that. Like, yeah, yeah. it was just because you had to, like, it was part of PE, yeah. and they got you out of a few classes and here and there, so why not? <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, 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 that was what yeah. I said. So, yeah, strong, strong enough, and, like, I never done any weights, and even with friends, now I was back coaching there, um, well, I want to say coaching, doing a few sessions with them this year with their, their first 15, yeah. literally just a couple of sessions nipping in and again boys don't even go to the gym like you know yeah. they have a really good gym in their in their fitness suite and when i was leaving the old football pitch it got dug up and there was a brand new sports facility built and in it was a gym and when i say a gym it was a bench a couple of pulleys and you know a couple of bikes and that, and that was really it but we never done any weights whatsoever we were all smaller and it wasn't until the academy that I actually realized that it was powerful and yeah. explosive where in school yeah. I didn't really uh, there's no there's no measure of it um, I'll say like guys like yourself sometimes you can be a star at school and then you go into obviously you played under 21s and stuff like that you're still standing out as a class player you go into like the senior Ulster team so we read a bit, a bit about that in the book but whenever you went in there was that a sort of coming back down to earth moment or did you step into that team sort of thinking, I'm going to take some names here. I'm going to, I'm going to impose myself on these guys. I know you talked a wee bit in the book about like Campbell Feather yeah. and stuff. Tell me a bit more about the atmosphere in the squad when you went in. Was there some people who put their arm around you or were you immediately viewed as a threat, this big guy coming in, this big athlete coming into the squad? Um, it's just weird. Like, I probably didn't touch on this in my book, but there's this awful thing in, in rugby, and I think, more in particular in Irish rugby that you have to earn your stripes before you're allowed to, you know, before before you can actually be given an opportunity. And like earning your stripes, that means that, you know, you have to be on time for your gym sessions. You know, you have to be um, wearing the right kit. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how much potential you have or how good athlete you are, or, you know, how good a skill for player you are. But if you don't tick all these boxes, first of all, you can easily slip through the net. And I get a list off half a dozen guys that have that I went that way. And yeah, when I went into the squad, I probably and it's not being big headed or anything, I probably the standard wasn't as high as I thought it was like you know I was coming from Ulster, a, a really really good Ulster under 21 team like from some fantastic players Gareth Steenson you know moving across he's one of those players that was never given an opportunity at Ulster like and you know in many caps does he have for Exeter he's taking them to finals you know many times over the years with Ulster I've given the right hand to have Gareth Steenson behind David Humphreys or Ruin Pienaar or Ian Humphreys so um, lads like that and uh, you, big guys like Lewis Stevenson, you know John Andreas, a brilliant tight head prop. But again, you know 
bit of, bit of boisterous, bit of a bad attitude at times. Didn't make him a bad player, like, uh, but his face, his face didn't fit. And, you know, at the time when I was 20 years of age, I was looking at guys like Rod Moore and Campbell Feller and Rowan Frost and, um, like, uh, Paul Shields and, like, all these lads, like, that are earning 60, 70, 80, 100 grand a year. And they're bloody average rugby players. Like, you know, uh, that's me being brutally honest. And you know me, like, I'm brutally honest. And <laughs> the young guys that were coming through, the John Andreas, myself, Big Lewis, you know, even Ryan Caldwell when he was young, so much potential, but we were never given this chance because we were the young guys coming out of the academy and we had to tick all those boxes of being on time and licking the coach's arse or licking the coach's backside for six months before giving a chance. That's just like, you know, that Ulster under-21 team, I think if Mark McCall had a stayed involved with Ulster, um, you would have seen a lot more of those guys um, come, come through the ranks uh, because he would have known to have a lot more of those players where, you know, there's so much change. And then Matty Williams coming in and he didn't know any anybody. So, yeah, um, I suppose going back to what you were saying there, coming into the squad, it it wasn't... I thought I was going to walk in and be, like, blown away by how skillful they were, how fit they were. Like, these man, like, the fitness levels of some of the professional athletes was an absolute disgrace. Like, it, it was laughable. Like, laughable. Um, yeah. Guys... Uh, not even been able to run 100 meters like without, uh, you know, huffing and puffing. So, yeah, it, I suppose the standard wasn't what I expected. So that was a brilliant thing for me because when I went in there, I always, I, I already felt that I was on a level playing field when it came to skills. Maybe fitness it probably took a while because it, it all came too easy for the first kind of couple of years of my career. So probably didn't get that much professional fitness until I was maybe. 21, 22. So yeah. Um, yeah. you know, but uh, yeah, that's the yeah. honest. Like it wasn't, it wasn't really what I expected. That's interesting to hear. And you obviously talk a wee bit in the book about coaches and stuff like that. So um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on like who is who is the best coach that you had in your career, particularly at Ulster, uh, and what makes a good coach, and maybe the opposite of that as well. Do you know. You, you sort of uh, you mentioned some of the coaches there as well. What doesn't make a good coach? If you give me a bit more of an insight in that, it would be great. Um, yeah, well, you have your bullshitters, like of course you do. You have your bluffers. Um, you have, and it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in, if it's sport or business, you have people that talk a good game. Um, you have people that are, um, when it comes to doing their homework, like somebody like Jeremy Davison, right? Jeremy Davison was one of the most unprepared coaches I've ever worked with. Like, rocked up late the meetings, didn't have his video analysis done for doing lineouts. He would just go to the whole the whole uh, game and just like scroll through quickly to get to the lineouts where um, if you had a coach who was prepared, they would have had it all cut up and they would have had things done. But that didn't make him a bad coach. Like, he, he was a really good coach and he got he got a lot out of players, like, you know, he got a lot out of me. He was able to get me up for games. Um, he was very, it was very simple. I think the approach that he had worked well for some of the group of players that were there. Um, and then you go, like, oh, Joe Smith. Okay, so Joe Smith has this regimented plan that everybody does this, this, and this. Well, that, that's all well and good when you're working with fantastic players. 
and you're working with Leinster and you're winning European Cups year in, year out, and then you go to Ireland and you have the same standard of player, if not better. Like if Joe Smith was to go to Dragons, I guarantee you he wouldn't make him that, that much better. Like I just think that a coach has to work with what he has, the group of players that he has, and then implement something that he thinks is going to work. And that's why I think Brian McLaughlin done a bloody good job because he realised the players that were in the squad, what he needed to bring in and take the team forward. Like, why did Ulster need to sign Charles Piatai? Like, what, what on earth? Why did that come about? Yes, he's one of the best players in the world, but we have plenty of back three players, but there was no need to sign him. So it was, uh, and one thing that David Humphreys was very good at was identifying where we were very weak. Okay, mm-hmm. we didn't have a tight head for bloody years. Like we were relying on Decky Fitzpatrick to, uh, you know, pull on his his boots once in a while, and then of course we go right, John Afoa, with nobody in the second row is kind of leading us. Uh, we need experience there. When, when when the going gets tough, okay, we'll go for a World Cup winner, Johan Muller, and then you sprinkle in a few other different people in there, a couple of good projects. Um, and the thing starts to come together. So David and, and Brian done a, a bloody good job of, of getting the um, getting every back, everybody back on the horse on on a I suppose on a, a path that we all wanted to go on. Like and um, that wasn't down to unbelievable coaching. That wasn't down to being the most prepared. That was just down to um, a bit of common sense and yeah. getting to know the players a lot. And instead of me walking up to Brian and going, right, Brian, he, and you know, he turns around and says to me, well, how's your mum and dad doing? And I say, oh, yeah, great, not too bad. What about your brother? Is he still studying? And what's he up to? Uh, what about your girlfriend? You know, it was always about, he never approached rugby at the, at the wrong time. Um, and he was, his man management was, was, was fantastic. Like people that didn't get selected by Brian McLaughlin, who weren't in the 23 would have told you he's a shit coach. But that's what happens. That People who get selected, like I can guarantee you, a lot of people who didn't get selected by Joe Smith would say that he's a crap coach and that it, he, they didn't enjoy working under him. Why? Because they didn't get selected by him. So if you ask Robbie Diak, like, um, what do you think of Bram McLaughlin? Oh, no way. No, no, I don't, don't like him. He, you know, so unprepared and, you know, didn't get all on with him. Why? Because he knew that he was, a, you know, a giant pussy and that he was found out. So, uh, yeah, like that's, that, that's my take on, on Brian and the coaching staff. Like Brian is a great coach. I suppose if you combine those, I would probably say that Eddie O'Sullivan was the best coach that I worked with. Um, at this point to see him not get back involved in the game, maybe five or six years ago, I think he's probably past it now in terms of getting back in because the game has moved on significantly. But he was he was ultra prepared. He was very very honest. Um, he uh, yes, of course, every coach has their favourites. Like and, and he did have a couple of favourites. My bugbear was Simon Easterby. Like I thought, like if I ran at Simon Easterby, I would run through him. If he ran at me, I would knock him back. And that's what that's what I always had in my head. Like, um, but in terms of his honesty, his man management, his uh, his coaching ability. Um, he was very direct. Uh, yeah, Eddie, Eddie was definitely probably the best. And he, he, he very rarely picked me. So, you know, I think I... <laughs> Fair value for saying Eddie uh, in those circumstances. Well, it's interesting you say Eddie because I, I always got the impression just as a fan he was very regimented 
to the point where he was a bit of a control freak. He'd take over every ad. He had designated ball carriers, et cetera, et cetera. I suppose most teams have that. But he's very strict about who would carry the ball, uh, very strict in terms of setup and stuff like that. And talking about good coaches being good at man management, you look at football and you look at Alex Ferguson, you go, maybe he wasn't the most tactically astute manager ever, but he was a great man manager. So, um, it's just interesting to, to hear you say, Eddie, I wouldn't have ever guessed. And I think particularly, I think coaches are judged in their World Cups as well, 2007 yeah, World yeah. Cup, which is a tough one. I suppose you're at the outset of your sort of Ireland career at that point, you went along to the World Cup. It didn't sound like a great experience. It no, only we- you, you got to, you got to, I'm sorry for cutting you, got to remember, like, like, it was so, it was, like, it was, the game was professional. I won my first Ireland Cup in 2006. Like, we stayed in the Kalani Castle Hotel. We were training in a gym, which is twice the size of the living room that I'm currently sitting in. We trained at Bray School. The grass was this length. I remember, scr- remember scrummaging, like, and we are just plowing through water. Like, yeah. it was so amateur, so, like, um, backwards. It was ridiculous. And mm. you've... World-class players like Ronan O'Gara trying to practice his kicking on 50-mile-an-hour wins at, at Bray School and the halfway line's only 25 yards out. Like, it, it, it was just, it was, it was madness. Like, it was when I think back on it, it, it was absolute madness. We were jumping in a coach for half an hour, 45 minutes, every single day to go to training and go back to training. It was just like going, what's going on? And then you look at it now, the, the whole Carton House thing, and, and now they've got the... the the um, center of excellence and like it's just come on leaps and bounds and uh, if you had had a lot of that team you know David Wallace and, you know, O'Connell and O'Gara and Stringer Draco Dars Shane Horgan like yeah it just baffles me I, I think you know the RFU were were stuck in their ways back then and uh, thankfully they've, they've moved forward significantly since yeah, and see whenever we talked uh, before about going into that Ulster squad and it not necessarily being a coming down to earth moment, which some some players would talk about, depending on when you joined Ulster, like then the quality that's going on at the time. But for you, it wasn't. But with going into the Ireland squad, you've got Paul O'Connor, you've got Callahan, you've got a back, uh, an amazing back row as you mentioned there. So you've you've got the likes of uh, David Wallace and um, Simon Easterby is. Uh, very solid player as well. Was that something which inspired you? You looked at those guys and were like, right, I'm whatever, 21. I want to be like those guys. Or was it a case again of like going in and thinking, here, I'm physically more imposing than these guys. This is my, this number six jersey's mine. Is that the attitude? Um, it, it was, but like I knew deep down that um, at international level, Back then, just winning your first cap, there wasn't that many opportunities. And I knew Eddie had his favourites. It was going to take a couple of injuries for me to get in and, and like get a get a starting role for a period of time. Like that, that was always going to happen. But again, there was this feeling of you have to earn your stripes. Like and oh, it, it, it cracks me up. And, and people saying, "Oh, is James Ryan? You know, he's too young to be captain of Ireland. Why?" Well, like he, why is he too young? He's, he captained the Irish under-20s for a couple of years, brought them a lot of success. Um, why can't he be captain of Ireland at the age of 22 or 23 or whatever he is now? Why? Well, he has to go on earn his stripes first. And, and again, I think slowly we're moving away from it. 
Um, I think uh, in Ulster, they're slowly starting to move away from it as well. Um, but yeah, back then, I can remember Draco or something, or maybe I was maybe Draco when I was in, I was doing uh, back then, like we were doing uh, cleans, a lot of cleans. Um, stupid, like, because my back's bollocks since. Uh, and I was cleaning a lot of weight and just really explosive, really powerful. No injuries, uh, no niggles, um, doing like 140, 150 kgs. And Draco pulled Eddie aside and said, oh, I hope that, fer- that fella Ferris can play rugby as well as lift weights. And like, that stuck with me like for a long time. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to prove this. I'm gonna prove Draco wrong. I'm gonna prove, you know, other people wrong. I just think that I'm this power athlete. Um, I have a bit more to my game. And anybody who had a known me or seen me play at under 19s or 21s would have known that anyway. But I think, like, you know, walking in and, and meeting Draco for the first time, he he shook my hand and put the head down, walked on, and I could maybe have one sentence with him in the next 18 months. Um, so. I it's different. It's hard for young lads to go in there. I think ten years ago, fifteen years ago, it was a lot harder. It was yeah. like there were so many clicks. I think of the two thousand seven World Cup. I mentioned in my book, and that like you had Dennis Hickey, Draco, Shane Horgan, uh, you know, going for food every night together, socialising every together, playing table tennis together, and then there was two or three young lads that were just in the corner shitting themselves. So it was. Um, I think it's a lot better now the way things are, but. Um, yeah, as a, as a young guy, I was I was kind of just wanted my uh, wanted my, my rugby to do the talking, uh, but it was difficult to do that at international level because it wasn't because of limited opportunity really. Yeah, 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 well, it's, yeah. In, it's interesting yeah. what you're saying about the difference in mentality there is now. There's there's the professionalism is greater, the preparation, and on that note, like. Be grateful for your thoughts on what happened in the most recent World Cup. Like, Spuzo had sort of the golden generation as you're coming through the ranks. 2009 would probably hit what was close to your peak. You know, sort of, uh, many people thought that would sort of be a catalyst for Irish rugby success and at the 2015 World Cup, where it didn't happen for us. But we thought, I was hopeful, 2019, we'd beat New Zealand in the interim twice. I thought this is our, this is our World Cup coming up in 2019. In your view, what happened at the World Cup in 2019 for Ireland? Like, is there anything you put your finger on? What do we need to change? I know that's a difficult question, probably, but um, yeah, like you if, if you take the world, if you take the World Cups, the last well, all the World Cups out of uh, away from Ireland, like Ireland have been pretty successful, especially over the last uh, what seven eight years. Like they have been pretty successful. Throw the World Cups in there, like and. If you ask an Englishman, a Welshman, a Scotsman, or Italian, or whatever, they'll say Ireland are a lot lower than what you and I think because of what they've achieved at World Cups. Yeah. Uh, two of those I was at. So, like, you, you can't get away from the fact that we've never been past the quarterfinal. Uh, we had a friggin' good chance, like, against Wales, best team on paper. I think we just went in expecting to win that match, and uh, people got complacent myself yeah. included and yeah our eyes were probably on the on, on a semi-final and um yeah like what happened this world cup what happened was we come up against a new zealand team that was hurt from uh previous defeats to ireland 
Um, I'm sure they were hyped up to the max because everybody was saying, "Oh, can Ireland get another scalp?" And you know, I think, I think there, New Zealand thought there was a bit of a lack of respect that Ireland showed in their victories over them, and you know, the way they were rubbing it in, and you know, everything else. And like you rub in every win, of course you do. But I think the All Blacks took took offence to the hype that the media gave Ireland on the back yeah. of their success <laughs> against them. And they used that to their advantage. And they were so clinical. They were ruthless. And, um, yeah, when they got when a New Zealand team gets their tails up, it, they are unstoppable. And yeah. When an Ireland team behind, they usually capitulate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the warning sign for me was when we went away to England. Uh, I was working for Sky that day, and it was like 33 degrees or something to pit side. It was crazy. And I was like, See, these conditions are going to be very similar to what we're going to be experiencing in Japan. It was actually ridiculously humid as well. And like, we're a good team, like a really yeah. good team. Like, and like, get absolutely hockeyed. And I was looking around, I was looking around the guys going, Peter Amani, like Bestie, um, Handy. You know, I was like, these guys were just running around with their heads down. I was like, if the goal gets tough at this World Cup, like, Oh, we could be in a bit of trouble. And of course, you know, before we knew it, we were, what, 17-0 down after 25 minutes against New Zealand. And uh, that was the game. But um, yeah, I think the preparation was slightly off. I know Bestie touched on it that uh, they probably took their eye off the ball when it came to the Japan game. And um, you know, their, their training was ridiculously intense uh, for three or four days before, I think it was... Uh, yeah, was, I think it was before the, the Japan game, like Joe was um, running the legs off them and uh, they, they went in and of course in the second half, like they uh, they folded. So yeah, just preparation wasn't particularly right. Um, the the warm-up games didn't go to plan. Um, I think from an injury point of view, it wasn't too bad, like uh, considering that their main players stayed fit and healthy. And yeah, Again, young guys like Jordan Larmer, who were in form, weren't getting picked. And I think, you know, hopefully going forward in the future World Cups, that lads are selected on form. And uh, again, because Rob Carney's been there, done it, he's won his, earned his stripes before, you know, he should be given the, the quarterfinal jersey, where he probably shouldn't be like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a wonderful thing. But yeah, Ireland got caught cold. New Zealand were fantastic and um, blew them away. Yeah, it's um, as you say, people judge a nation on their World Cup performance. I don't think it's entirely fair. I think Ireland have had a golden generation. We just didn't peak at the right time. I think um, we didn't have a plan B. I think um, I think Joe Schmidt, ha- 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 with the way they played for, for years, was very conservative in some ways. And yeah. uh, like any sort of sports fan, if you're a real fan, you don't massively care <laughs> as long as you win the game. And they did that for years. And then uh, they sort of got found out a wee bit at the World Cup. But something, something I want just to return briefly, you're talking about sort of going into that Ulster squad. It was a bit, bit of a, a crap squad for, for, you know, in that sort of whenever you joined, as you're saying. Then we hit sort of that period where the South Africans come in, John Afua comes in. Tell me a bit about the impact of the South African guys. You've got Muller, Pienaar, Vandenberg, and then Asmusa Afua would be the next piece of that jigsaw. 
in terms of winning mentality, tell me a bit about their impact, how significant it was, if it was significant, and I suppose following on from that, so how did Ulster get to the top level of Europe again? Sorry, that's a very long question, but we're, <laughs> we're at the top yeah. level of Europe in, say, 2012. How do we get back there again? Do any yeah. guys like that, sort of former World Cup winners, how else, how else are we going to do it? Well, we got to keep growing the game uh, at Ulster. Like, you know, we got to keep finding. Uh, I've been somebody who's, you know, been banging the drum on the bandwagon of, I, I'm sure you're the same. You'd love to see 15 Ulster men run out and represent Ulster. You know, born and bred, went to school here, family here. It means everything to them to represent Ulster. And, like, we all want that. And I know for a fact that. The Leinster, Leo Cullen, has, walks into the meetings every time, every Monday at Leinster, and he's chatting to the Leinster Academy coaching team, and he's saying, and they're like undefeated, and that's not good enough because he wants to be able to feel the Leinster team that's full of Leinster players, born and bred from Leinster. That's what Leo Cullen wants to do. And he doesn't just want to feel the team with guys from Leinster. He wants to win European Cups with lads that are born and bred there. And, I, of course, I'd love to see that. But I think, to go back to the first part of your question, what did John bring? Like, John Afoa, yes, World Cup winner. He stands John Afoa beside somebody like Rod Moore or Simon Best. Like, it's it's like night and day. You know, this guy can catch and pass. He's explosive. He's powerful. He can scrummage. He is built like a brick shit house. He is, um, you know, he's got this no-fear attitude. And... He believes in himself. And if you're somebody who's, first of all, a bloody good player, then it makes things easy. Where if you bring somebody in who's average and it doesn't really work out, then other lads won't galvanize around them. Other lads won't look up to them. And, um, you know, we've, we've, seen, like, we've seen guys come and go throughout the years that, that that's happened. Um, but Johan Muller, again, first of all, really good player. Brilliant player. Um, his line-out ability um, the way he called the line-outs um, everything was so softly spoken and easily understood and clarity and absolutely everything that you've done um, Pedri Vandenberg didn't really say too much he just went and done his own thing that was okay, you let him go and do that Pedri was just a player that we needed at the time for a couple of years at number 8 because we were struggling we had lost Roger Wilson and Neil Best was gone um, I wasn't playing number eight. I, I kind of cemented myself in at six. So, and then Ruben Pinar, obviously, I played against him at under-21 World Cup in Argentina. Um, he was on the bench, funny enough, and then ended up uh, from half, who was the captain of the South African under-21 team, hurt himself. Ruben Pinar started the final, or come on in the final, one of the two. One man in a match. And I was like, Jesus, guys, unreal. And I can always remember him because of his massive eyebrows. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, yeah, what, what did they bring in? They, they brought experience. They brought uh, – they were class players. So you knew you were always going to get a bit more. Um, and younger players looked up to them and learned a lot of them. And, you know, if you have three or four of those guys in your squad, then, you know, it's a bloody good recipe. Um, and, yeah, they – they consistently perform well, um, which is, is is also a big thing. Um, yeah. you know, they, 
with a lot of players over the years too, like who, you know, turn it turn it on. Like Ian Humphreys won't mind me saying it. Like Ian Humphreys was a rock star one week and absolutely shocking the next week. Um, <laughs> but you kind of you knew you were going to get that with Ian, and generally ninety percent of the time in the big games, he, he did turn up. Um, and that's why he play, that's why he played a lot, and I enjoy playing with him. But yeah, um, the foreigners who come in were from by David were, um, were were selected well, like and yeah. Humph done a good job, and he built a good relationship. And and lastly, like they were good blokes. Mm-hmm. They were they were good lads. None of them had an attitude or this. Um, or that they were better than anybody else, uh, or they were there to pick up a paycheck, um, you know. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah really, yeah. really, really good lads that, that contributed a lot to Ulster Rugby. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think we're we're similarly minded in that way. You're talking about um, Ulster being. I think there's nothing wrong with bringing in top quality players from outside of the province. I think that's completely necessary in the modern modern game. But you have to choose them so carefully, and you can't choose journeymen to come in. And uh, yeah, and take up those non-Irish qualified spots. In terms of, I think, yeah, sorry, game for coming. I think like there's a gripe with from from me and from I'm not sure about yourself, but a lot of Ulster rugby fans that went to watch Ulster, like, and I went uh, working at games the last couple of years, and there's been what ten Leinster guys starting for Ulster or something, or eight, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, the pack against the team there at the start of the season, there wasn't one Ulster guy born and bred on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, okay, right, Sean Reed, he's a good player. Like, oh, he, he's a good player. But are you telling me that there's nobody in that Ulster academy or in the province somewhere who's coming up who is can be just as good as him or can be better or has the potential to be better? Um mm-hmm. Or uh, you know the other lads that have come up from Leinster, a couple of them in the back row. Like I, I just don't. I'm like, what what what's the what's the point in this Ulster Academy? Like if we're if we're not giving guys opportunities. So yeah, yeah. Yes, maybe are qualified. Yes, you may um, be slightly better than somebody that's in the academy um, for a short, very short period of time. But we got to start bringing these young guys forward and give them bloody chances. Like me as a young guy, there was, was, I hated like this here. Oh yeah, we're sending the B team, B team down to uh, Limerick. They get beaten by 60 points. Why can't you throw the young academy lad in to like Balakun? He's been amazing. Starting against Claremont last year, uh, Racing last year. He was absolutely amazing. When these young kids actually put in the quality teams, that's when yeah. you see the best. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. I hope that we see more of that. And you know, as I've harped on, I'm not sure you feel the same that we see more of the Ulster lads brought in instead of you know going searching around the Ireland or the island just for public eyes here, uh, going to fill holes for a year or two. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think you're completely right. I think um, we have talent coming through there. I think there's a number of guys. You're looking at Tom O'Toole. I think he'll play for Ireland. I think he could be a future British Lion as well. I think he really, really rate Tom O'Toole. And then there's other guys coming through. The problem with Ulster is they don't actually produce historically anyway in the past sort of 10 years. We haven't produced any forwards apart from him 
there's a few guys have come through, but in terms of world class players, uh, plenty in the backs. I think Michael Lowry's class, whether he's yeah. too small, I don't know. I don't think so. I think he could he could slot in at ten. I think that's his natural position, maybe. But talking of guys that we need, you look at that team we have now. There's not many bad players, and in fact, I couldn't like identify anyone who's bad. You look at that team. Not picking on, on anyone in particular, but if you look at to look at the positions, where where can we where can we go up a level? You you look maybe six. You're talking about six. Sean sorry, good player. Matty Ray's good player. Is there any other position? Would you agree with that? Or is there any other position that we yeah. need to strengthen in to get to the top level? Yeah, I think like the people are are listening to this or are going to watch this that. Um, I think this is really important for people to understand is that when somebody talks about a player, so when somebody says to me, ah, oh, geez, you know, Sean Reedy's a half-decent player and you know, Matty Ray's a half-decent player. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, they're only young, you know, with a bit of time. I'm like, they're 26 and 30. Like, you know, you should be making your international debut at the age of 21. Like, 19, 20, 21, 22, Jordan Larmer, you know, Keith Earls, Andrew Trimble, Tommy Bowe. Like, I was training with Tommy Bowe at under-19s, and he was going and playing against Romania the next week. Like, you know, uh, in the old Lansdowne Road. That's that's what we got to get back to, and that's, I think, the standard of player that we need. Yes, we have. We have a lot of guys who are good players. I think... When you go outside of the match day 23, when every single person in Australia is fit, the match day 23, I think they can win the European Cup. I, I 100% think and if they have everybody fit, that they can win the, the European Cup. They're a bloody good side. Yeah. You take out Stuart McCluskey, yeah. you take out Marcel Coutier, I don't think we would make the quarterfinals. Yeah. Like, yeah. That sounds stupid, but if you take them out, you've got to have two guys that are just as good or just a little yeah. bit off it that you can slot in. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's where, that's where Ulster are, are going to find their feet. Hopefully, over the next couple of years, because if you look at Leinster, you look at Saracens, you look at Toulouse, they have that. Um, yeah, the, yeah. They're able to, they're able to beat teams with whatever players they have, and unfortunately, this has been even when I played like 2012, the match day 23 was brilliant. Yeah, and you, you say that you go back to David Humphreys kicking a last minute drop goal against Ospreys 2006. Same thing. You can say exactly the same thing about the team. So it's about it's about for Ulster rugby going forward. I think they need to build a better squad. They need yeah. to build yeah. a better quality of player in their squad. Um, and you know, with uh, with Dan McFarlane, Roddy Grant, and uh, JP, who's doing a great job of the defence. Like uh, that's probably been the biggest plus for me is is how good their defence has been over the last couple of seasons. Like last year, you were probably out at the European Cup quarter final against mm-hmm. Leinster. Like flip, we lost we lost that game, but you know I I got the train back up the road with my head held high because yep. the the performance they put in. So yeah, um, yeah, it, it's there. I just think that um, yeah, if we can improve the, the standard of player and um, when it's coming up through, and, and maybe that's got to do with the academy. Maybe the, the level of coaching there is that good enough? I have a, I have no idea. I'm not in there day to day like so. Yeah. I can't tell you. Um, but yeah, I think. As a province, we, we can certainly utilise what we have a lot more efficiently. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you mentioned there's a few players that we missed them were screwed. I could say is one Cooney's one, probably McCloskey as well. When we don't have say James Hume, say James Hume and, and Lawyer will be a great partnership at ten and twelve in the future. I think Billy Burns is a great player. And it's interesting that you think we can compete with the top teams. See if we have all our players fit, we probably could compete with those top teams. That's reassuring. You think that as well? Um, but we'll. We'll see, like, this is actually, this whole being stuck at home thing, we'll find out who the, who the guys who are dedicated are, who's going to come back massive next season. <laughs> massive yeah. and really in shape, and that will be a real test. Speaking of being massive and, <laughs> and sort of an athlete, this is a question from a listener, Graham Dewhurst, who does a bit of commentary at Ulster as well. So he says, do you have any regrets about the damage rugby did to your body? And what are your thoughts about the brutal physicality of the modern professional game? Yeah. Um, any regrets? Um, oh, not really, to be honest, any regrets. I think, do you know what? Like, I've said this a lot, and I said it in my book, I've said it to public speaking or said it to anybody. I played 100 miles an hour every single week. Didn't matter if it was zebra on a friday night or it was a grand slam decider final against wheels played 100 mile hour why because i enjoyed it and i love doing that like i easily i know for a fact there's guys out there that um you know play a couple of games tweak a hamstring relax they actually look at the fixture list and plan out you know where they can kind of hit the big games, then rest a couple. Then, you know, I think player they manage themselves a lot more. And I definitely could have prolonged my career if I had had that same approach. Yeah. Of course I could have. But I wouldn't have enjoyed it. I wouldn't have got the buzz. I wouldn't have uh I think I probably wouldn't have earned the same amount of respect uh from the fans and from fellow players if if I had a approach um, you know those games with that attitude. So yeah, like no no regrets whatsoever. I think my body now it's it's, it's not good. Like and, and even now, like I love playing golf. Anybody who knows me is like, oh, you on the golf course against Davey? Trying to slag me. <laughs> like my wrists are absolutely killing me. Like and I'm like going at Davey Irwin, a former Ulster player, like British Irish Lion, he's my GP. I'm like, Davey, he's like, oh, we'll get it x-rayed, see how it is. And then, of course, this pandemic kicked off. Yeah. And it hasn't really settled. And I'm like, did I fracture my wrist? Like, both of them are like, killing me. I'm like, did I fracture my wrist when I was maybe 19, 20, 21, and just played on because there was another big game happening that week? Yeah. Um, and I'm like, my, my right ankle, I've actually started running a little bit now. When I say running, I'm like snail's pace and just to try and work up a sweat. But again, I do that. I'm, I'm sore and I'm uh, feeling sorry for myself. Like my wife's like, maybe we stop complaining. Like you have a sore wrist this week, you have a sore knee next week, you have a sore back next week. I give an acupuncture mat sitting over here. Um, I've loaded stuff in the garage and I've all these fans of ice packs all over the house. Like, <laughs> I'm not taking, I'm currently not taking any anti-inflammatories because of the coronavirus. So my body's even sore now. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's like I think one thing that any of the young listeners are um, is that 
your, your body is going to be put through the mill if you play professional rugby for a period of time. Of course it is, yeah. because yeah. it's a complex sport. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think when I played, you know, I can remember landing at the bottom of a rock against Beeritz at home in 2005, 2006, around that time. And, like, getting absolutely cut to smithereens. My legs I probably needed stitches, you know, from yeah. getting uh, getting raked that hard. Yeah. Like, so. a guy uh, that was at the tight head prop, a guy called Balan, who played mm-hmm. tight head for Beeritz. He was like maybe 25 stone, big balded head guy, traps coming out here. And I can remember him just running over the top of my back. And going, oh, this is nuts. Like, thankfully, the game yeah. is being safer and, yeah. um, yeah. and going forward, it's for the better for sure. But um, I, lots of injuries, um, lots of things hold me back. My old thumbs are, are, are in a bad, bad way, but um, no regrets. Oh. All worth it. All worth it for the, uh, what you achieved. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you don't have any regrets about that. I suppose, like it's they're looking at changing the rules and reducing like lower tackling height. What do you What do you make of all that? Do you think that'll ruin rugby, or do you think that's probably a sensible enough approach? You're talking earlier about you actually. Whenever you're younger, you actually used to avoid players. <laughs> you're definitely yeah. sort of the booster boy for running through people. Um, yeah. but that's increasingly common now like you talking even not just back rooms like yourself but backs are just massive and they plow through defences uh, do you think that sort of new tackling role all this new information coming out about concussions and stuff do you think it's a necessary evil do you think uh, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing sort of safe yeah like tackling low isn't now the stats are probably proving me wrong here but tackling low in my opinion I never injured myself tackling anybody from here to here. Never injured myself. Never injured anybody else, really. Um, tackling low, you're going to take a knee to the head. Um, you're tackling around the midriff, you're going to take a hip to the head. Um, and uh, like rugby, as I've mentioned a few times, it's a contact sport. And personally, I feel if... Uh, like the tackling at the minute is if if you hit anybody here the players are all shouting for penalties and everything I I think that defences are out of the blocks so quickly that um, the attacking teams more or less have no choice but just to run straight into people and the offside line and you know yourself, you go to Ravenhill on a Friday night, it is not being policed. Like, mm-hmm. it is frightening. Like, the, the ball's getting to Billy Burns' hands, and the defence is already in his face and smashing boys yeah. outside him. Yeah. And, and I think that has to be slowed down slightly for us to be able to watch a more attacking game. Is that to keep the ball alive? Is that like to be like Japan, where, you know, you try not to take contact and you. You dance around and sometimes you run up your own backside, but then you come out the, the better of it two or three phases later. Is that the way to go forward? It maybe is, but I can't, it's not going to win you a World Cup. Like, you know, it's, it's not going to win you a European Cup. It's not going to win you a Pro 14 title. And the, it's a big game's, uh, big man's game, like bigger, stronger, fitter, faster players. The more athletes you have in your squad, the better that uh, you're probably going to do. So, yeah. Um, uh, like, I think it's worth experimenting with different things. And I know people don't like the rules being changed all the time. And I was probably one of those people when I, when I played. Um, but experiment, 
see what works, see what doesn't work. Um, yeah. You know, the whole tackle thing, it seems to be, you know, it seems to be okay at the minute. But, like, if, if you're going to start trying to police you know, tackling around the ankles, I think it's a, it's a road to nowhere, really. Yeah, um, so, yeah. Yeah, just trial and error, try a few things out, see what happens, and then take it from there. Yeah, exactly. We don't want the, uh, the game becoming more like football. As much as I love football, we don't want that, the, that whole thing of appealing, like for looking for high tackle and all that nonsense. Um, and there, there are some rules there. I think one of the other guys I've spoken to made a very good point. There are rules in existence, but they're just not enforced. For example, as you say, the offside rule, the, uh, the five-second ruck rule as well, getting the ball away, none of this nonsense, forming a caterpillar at the back of a ruck. Yes, <laughs> Uh, rules are there. Referees just need to apply it a bit more and be consistent yeah. because it is infuriating when you're watching a game and you're like, has he, has he read the rules? But anyway, <laughs> um, so in terms of like sports psychology, you mentioned that we bit in your book. You had a coach come in, he tried a bit of that visualization type stuff and you weren't really buying into it. I think the lads probably find it a bit funny, a bit, a bit sort of, <laughs> bit of nonsense. See, in terms of like your sports psychology, Wrecking ball on the pitch. Everyone seems to think you're, you know, that, that's, that's what you are. Everyone says you're a completely different character off the pitch. You go out of your way to help people come on this podcast, you speak to fans and you love their own Ulster. How did you flip the switch in the beast mood before the game? How is that sort of self-taught? I know maybe at the time you didn't buy into the sports psychology or particular aspects of that. But how did you how did you teach yourself to flip that switch uh, to go onto the pitch and absolutely bust people? Um, to be honest, I, th- I think uh, obviously brought <coughs> excuse me brought up very well. Like mum and dad were were good to me, but with, they were also very uh, like they would have disciplined me like too. Um, uh, wouldn't really got away with too much. But at the same time, they give me a lot of freedom. And you kind of learn your own way in life through your early teens. And you sort of gain a bit of responsibility. And yeah, like I was able to flick that when I first went to Friends and that first ever Friday morning session. Like I was able to flick that switch on. So as soon as I caught the ball, I was in this terrier mode where I was going to run around somebody and try and score a try. And then as soon as I scored a try, was back into just like cruising around mode again and I don't know I think like if you talk to um, like sports scientists that people with you know fast twitch fibers who are very explosive powerful athletes seem to be able to do that um, you know Sean O'Brien likes a really good lad off the pitch and you know he's a, he's a bit of a joker and good crack and the amount of stuff he does for charity and, and everything else. And then when he goes onto the pitch, he's an absolute beast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, he's of a similar uh, mode to me, mold to me, that um, he's very explosive, very powerful. And um, I think people that are built like that are can, can go in and out of that kind of mode. And uh, yeah, like I didn't ever, ever think about it like the way you've just asked me there I've never been a professional rugby player I went geez I wonder why I can turn it on there for 10 seconds and then just knock it off again I never ever thought like that I think it just kind of actually throughout growing up and um, playing the game and then yeah that explosive power that I had that I I built up and like yes I came naturally but geez I had to put work at it like everybody always everybody always talks about these explosive powerful players like yes 
genetically they, they are a little bit blessed. But at the same time, these guys are putting hours and hours and hours and hours of gym work in. Like, you know, yeah. it just doesn't happen for them week in, week out. So, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting one, but I never sat and thought about it. Yeah, no, it's interesting. There's so many people talk about their routine before the game, visualizing stuff. But I suppose for you, it makes sense. You're on a pitch in front of thousands of people. You better turn it on. Like, you need to, you need to get into that mood. Did you thrive in that environment, like in front of oh, yeah. the orders groups yeah. of people? Did you get nervous or were you just like, bring it on, step out onto the pitch, all these eyes on you, you're like, right, I'm going to turn it on here? Yeah, I always feel like anybody who says they don't get nervous, I, I think's lying. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I always got a little bit nervous. Um, I think if you don't have nerves, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't keep you on your toes. It yeah, doesn't, yeah. Uh, <laughs> keep you on that fine line on that edge but like again anybody listening like as soon as the whistle goes like literally <sighs> nerves are gone like yeah. no nerves in your body um you're into this match mode you're just concentrating on making that tackle like things are moving so fast like the difference from playing a rugby match at Dungannon to playing an international against England is like night and day. You know, yeah. split decisions all over the pitch. And um, yeah, like I was nervous before matches, but um, I made sure my preparation was right. Um, if my body generally felt good in the games, I always had it in my head that I would try and make a- an impact in the first kind of play. So for like if if it's kickoff, um, you know, and and they they catch the ball, then I would try and make myself that guy either tackling them, or if they receive the kickoff, put it back to their from half. They put a box kick in. I would stand across from Trimby or Tommy or whatever. They would pass the ball to me, and I I would absolutely steam into somebody and just try and set a tone. Yeah. When I say set a tone, it's set a tone not just for me and the other players around me, but set a tone for the atmosphere in the stadium, set a tone for the, the crowd to get behind something if that's a big hit or if it's a like sometimes it made no sense just to absolutely ply into somebody. But against Claremont, when we beat them 12 11, Humph scored that try down the left hand touchline. Like the first couple of plays of that game, I, I think they're tight head prop. I ran into him like. So hard a couple of times. But again, it just give the atmosphere and the crowd and everything. And then we fed off that. Yeah. And the coach mm-hmm. fed off that. And then and I think that was something that I always had in my head. So um yeah, it was making an impact first couple of minutes. Try to. Sometimes that didn't happen, you know, the the way that the rugby ball bounces sometimes doesn't go your way. Um, and just try and grow into the game, and then when you when you do touch the ball or you do make a tackle, um, you make a few game changing hits or game changing carries. Um, you can swing them, swing the match. So yeah, uh, that's yeah. Always, that was approach. But preparation, I'm sure a lot of rugby players would tell you, like it's it is key. Yeah, the natural question following from that, I suppose, is you're talking about game changing moments. There's a couple of ones stand out in everyone's mind whenever you mention Stephen Ferris. There's the Ireland Australia Will Genia uh, hit. Where he carried him back, he charged him back down the field. <laughs> There's, and more than any player, you, you, you have those game changing moments in you. And I think they're always better, in my opinion, in defense 
whenever you get the crowd on their feet by hitting someone really hard and making them scared to catch the ball. In terms of moments on the pitch, uh, speaking of those things, I'll give you an example there. There's also that sort of comeback hit you've been out for ages of injury. There's that comeback hit that everyone remembers as well. In terms of highlights on the pitch, just in general, we're talking Lions, Ireland, Ulster. What are your highlights on the pitch? Is there any particular moment that stands out as, as the best bit uh, of your career? Uh, do you know what? Like on the Lions tour in 09, um, <coughs> I come off the bench against uh, Golden Lions, wasn't it, in 2009 in Johannesburg and scored that try from about 60 or 70 out and like put the head down the guy called Killian I think is the the winger's name and he was kind of coming across and I kept kept to put the power down and then I ran out of steam and he sort of just got to me and he tap tackled me and I just got over the line and when I got over the line and, and tried to stand up I couldn't because it was so <laughs> and I just fell over again I think it was Rob <laughs> Rob Carney come up to me and he goes, you all right, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, like the buzz off that and like family at home, like, you know, my picture was in all the newspapers, like running, like, you know, full tilt. Um, it was made uh, in Sky Sports because it was, it was a great try, brilliant defensive effort. Um, I think who wasn't made the hit? It was Ross Ford, I think, made the hit. And then we both counter rocked and then I picked it up and, and went. But it was it was that probably that week. So I had to back up again. I started the next match against the Cheetahs in Bloomfontaine three or four days later. Um and I was due to start the first or be on the bench in the first game and start the second game. whatever way it worked out, didn't work out like that. I, I remember getting off the bus in training, Johannesburg, and whatever way I turned and got off the bus, I felt like it was probably just really tight, the amount of training and traveling and everything we were doing. Um, my quad, like, and I never had any trouble with my quad muscles my whole career. I felt yeah. really, really tight, and I sat out training. And Ian McGeegan said to me, he's like, look, Stevie, we're going to be on the bench for the first game. It's, this team's pretty rubbish anyway. It doesn't matter who plays in this game, but like, mm. you know, we're going to win it anyway. Um, just relax, take it easy for a week or two, see where see where we get the squad. I was like, right. So then it unfolded that Tom Croft started the second game in Johannesburg, and I was on the bench, and Jimmy he's it wasn't involved. And then I started the third game or fourth game, whatever way it worked out. I can't remember. Maybe another one in there. Um, and yeah, against the Cheetahs, then I won the man of the match. I got yellow carded. Uh, by Wayne Barnes and then um, it was like a tit for tat match James Hook I think hit a drop goal their right half missed a drop goal to win it um, there was hardly anybody in the stadium watching it there was maybe 10,000 15,000 in the stadium it was bizarre but I was playing some ridiculous rugby like I was the fittest I'd ever been uh, so so fit um, so so physical, my body felt brilliant, no niggles um, at all. And probably that week was biggest high and everything that I'd felt. And then, of course, probably had the lowest week, you know, about six or seven days later after that when I when I took my MCL and training. 
Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I don't. I don't want to dwell on the the injuries and stuff because you've covered it a lot and in other interviews and stuff. And look, you played. Uh, you played a hundred percent every game, and you can't regret doing that. Like you went out, oh, you had a class career, like and. That same year, through the Grand Slam year, and then Lions, like what, what amazing! I knew that wasn't the end of it, but like, what an amazing way to, uh, what an amazing career. See, in terms of your transition out of rugby, though, so just want to touch. This is like one of the last things I'm going to ask you. In terms of like transition out of rugby, you're doing the punditry, and people like the way you're you're quite a straight talker, which is great. Um, it's popular with viewers and. Um, people like to hear people's actual opinions, which is actually quite rare on TV in terms of punditry. Uh, it must be hard to, to criticise a team of players that you're friends with, or at least were. I know maybe some of those guys have moved on, but you'll still know some of those guys, you'll bump into them. Number one, is that a bit awkward? And also, is that what you intend to do? Or is there other projects? Is that something you're putting sort of, you're putting all your eggs in that basket for the time being, sort of focusing on punditry and broadcasting? Um, yeah, like, I suppose, Steve Watson, BBC, threw me a bone, really. And, like, I made a lot of good decisions when I played rugby. Um, you know, financially, of course, I'd love to, Played for another four or five years, and like you look at Johnny Sexton earning what five, six, seven hundred grand a year, whatever it is, or eight hundred grand at Racing '92 and all that. Like, of course, I would have loved to have earned stupid money for a few years and been able to kick back and, and never have to worry about you know being not being financially secure. Like, I would have loved to have been able to do that, but you know, the hand that I was dealt, it, you know, I had to retire from rugby, and yes. I could have done absolutely nothing for a couple of years, had a bit of breathing space because, um, you know, I was smart with, with funds during rugby. Um, but when I got out of it, I was like, do you want to do a bit of coaching to try and stay involved in the game? You know, I, I just don't think I could have cut the rope straight away yeah. and just moved yeah. out of it completely. Um, and yeah, working, doing a few things for BBC and then, you know, that got really good response and then you know, working for it's kind of snowballed a bit and working for the Lions for Sky and then working RT for the World Cup there and um, it's, it's, it's been really really good and um, as you say people like an honest opinion but the way I look at it is that I place myself like you in the middle of the of the fans and if Rory Best is throwing 50% of his line out ball then that's not good enough and you're standing and shouting at Rory Best, flip sake, Rory, sort it out, get that sorted out, friggin', you haven't thrown straight all day, you know, get Rob Herring on, and I'm, like, that, that's the way I think, like, that's, I'm sitting there going, but I just say it on TV, say, yeah. <laughs> they're saying exactly the same thing, so, um, I'm not really saying anything different, people who, people who um, I've played with would say, oh, Stevie, he's not really a technical guy, you know, he's just run into people and tackle people really, really hard. And, you know, um, I think that um, when, when I look at analysis, I just don't go, oh, yeah, he should have run harder through him and he should have done this through that. I actually look at the game as a whole. When I do re-watch it and I do my analysis and I'm putting notes together, that I just don't rock up the games. And I tell you what, Peter, there are a lot of guys who rock up the games that work in the media 
with yeah. absolutely nothing, a pen and paper, and they'll just go, right, let's wing it. Let's see how it goes this week. I'm not one of those guys. Like, yeah. Collaboration is everything. And yeah. um, like I'll sit here and write out, uh, I'm not sure about you, but I'm somebody who, if I write something down, I'll remember it a lot yeah. more if, yeah. if I write it down. So like I'm, I'm, I'm writing the same team sheets out like every week, like Bath versus Ulster, Ulster versus Bath, exactly yeah. the same team, teams playing <laughs> against each other. We game we got, but I'll do everything yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's just something that I get into a routine, but I've probably learned a lot off the likes of Mark Robson, like Stephen Watson, who's been a bit of a mentor for me. Um, obviously, probably, in, in my opinion, I know I'm, I'm biased because I'm friends with him, but he is the best in the business. Like he is unreal. Photographic memory walks into BBC Newsline. Uh, he does all his own scripts. Uh, reads them two or three times. Throws them out. Doesn't need them. Doesn't really use auto cue. He's just ultra professional. Yeah. Um, and. You know, it, it is an art, like it, it yeah. is. Um, and yeah, I just kind of seamlessly kind of transitioned into that. Is it something that I want to do for the next 20 years? No, absolutely not. I, I don't want to be sitting in, you know, uh, 15, 20 years time trying to make a living going to uh, an Ulster game on a Friday night. I want to go and stand beside you and have a pint and, and enjoy it and, and, you know, slobber it whoever I want and, and nobody <laughs> really says anything. Um, but at the minute, it, it's it's really good for my profile. It, it's really good learning curve. Um, I still have a passion for the game, so it keeps me involved in the game. Um, and I, I'm respected with uh, the whole way throughout the, the media world. So as long as that continues, I'll probably stay involved. Now, that might go down ever so slightly. People retire. Other people will want to have a passion to get into it. Somebody might be better than you. Other people are given opportunities. So I I know I'm I'm not stupid. Like I know that um, you know, there will be a time in a year, five years time, where I go, like, do you know what? You know, one of these young lads is is much better than me. The, the game's evolved even more, and and everything else. And I'll step aside and, and I move into something else. Uh, at the minute, I'm doing some work with uh, with an insurance company over in the UK for injured rugby player insurances, but. With policies, of course, there's no one better to sell insurance policies about injured rugby player insurance than me. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm working alongside those guys. I've made a hell of a lot of contacts after rugby. And I wish I had done more of that during rugby. Um, you know, a lot more networking and everything. And, and, and thankfully, um, you know, I've contracts with with good sponsors, uh, Heineken, Ladbrokes, uh, Skoda, a few others in there as well that have supported me for the last five or six years since retirement. But again, that will all come to an end and that will all, um, you know, there will be other guys retiring. So it's making hay with some shines, but also not just doing it for the sake of it. You have to have a passion for it. You have to want to um, do your prep, do your analysis for, you know, yeah. versus, yeah. versus, you know, dragons on a Friday night. Um, you got to want to do that. So, um, yeah, I'm still enjoying it. And, I uh, still love going and supporting and getting a bit of the buzz. And uh, anybody that, that says to you about live television, there's uh, there's no better buzz than being on live TV. I'm <laughs> sure. Well, speaking of fragging, but that's, that's what um, Stephen Watson, when he was on, he was saying he noticed how prepared you were. Mark Robson said it as well. Like, you have your notes in front of you, and it's not a case of rocking up. And I think you can sort of tell the people who do that. 
it's particularly prevalent in football. Yeah. <laughs> a few a few of the ex players rock up and they're sitting match of the day, they're sitting Steve McBanaman, uh, you ever hear you ever hear him in BT Sport like yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's a prime <laughs> example. But it's one of those things I think people think I used to play the game I'll rock up and I'll chat about it and be the bother. But mm. rugby's one of those games, it's quite complicated. Number one, it needs to be accessible to fans. Like fans need to understand what's going on, on the pitch. Number two, they want to see what's happening on the pitch reflected in what the pundits are talking about. So, so, so as you're saying, like some of your mates are probably playing in the game, particularly after, just after you retired or more recently. And um, it must be awkward to talk about that. But you just have to. It's it's a separation yeah. between that professional role and the personal side of it. But I think some guys are, are reluctant to do that and call people out. They are. Yeah. They are. And I, I think, like, um, where I grew up, like, all my mates, my friends, like, um, if I was in trouble and I picked up the phone, I wouldn't be ringing any of the lads I'd played rugby with. Like, I'd be mm-hmm. ringing the boys that I grew up with. Um, yeah. Guys who would drive to the end of the earth for you to fix a flat tire and drive back, you know, those are the guys that I call friends. Everybody else that I've played with, now I do have a few friends that come out that have come out of rugby and a couple that have come out of Ireland. Uh, the, the Irish boys, everybody else, they're all acquaintances. They're all people that I shared good memories with. Mm-hmm. Um, I have good words to say about them, um, but they aren't my mates. Like they aren't my yeah. good friends. Like they're they're good lads, like and they're, they're all acquaintances. Like that's that's fair enough, and I'm sure they'd say yeah. the same about me. Um, but like just because you played with somebody for 50 times and you trained with them every day for uh, you know six or seven years, like I can guarantee you, in your line of work or in a business down the road, because you work with somebody every single day, it doesn't mean that they're your mate. Like no. or you, I'm sorry, <laughs> they're your, your best friend. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. so it's the same in rugby. And, and a lot of fans probably don't understand that. You know, they always, they probably think that, um, you know, me and, uh, who will throw out a name, me and Andrew Trimble are best mates. Like, we're not, not at all. Like, he, he's, he's a Christian, good living guy. Um, I, I'm probably slightly more the opposite. He has his own group of friends. I have my own group of friends. Like, Rory Best. Like, I haven't socialized with Rory Best um, for what four years like yeah but he, he was yeah. a good lad and um you know a, a guy who i spent a hell of a lot of time with when i played rugby but yeah. like that's yeah. a small part of my life like you know yeah. that, that was yeah. that was 10 years of my uh, of my life and hopefully it continues on and i grow old and everything else but yeah i think that you know that's that's a weird one for fans to kind of understand um, yeah because yeah. Uh, friends acquaintances mates lads you know, it, it's, all, it's all a bit sketchy at times. Yeah, people assume that you're all, you all sort of hang out constantly. Um, yeah, just yeah, yeah, rugby yeah. for a bit, but of course, like uh, those guys, great lads who they are, have their own lives going on, and it's actually so much yeah. better. It's a bit, it's it's much more healthy way to live rather than having your life wrapped wrapped up in rugby. Like, and there's some yeah. real people, their eggs are all in one basket, and for sure. Uh, You'd slightly worry about that. I mean, you're off doing different stuff. You're playing all, the, all those Methody guys, isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> Back you up on that, hundred <laughs> percent. Hopefully, there's some of them listening. Um, yeah. So, final th- final thing. 
just a list of quick fire ones. Take two minutes, right? It'll not keep you any longer. But a few yeah. fans, say say fans of yours, listeners to, listeners of the podcast, have messages with with, uh, with questions. So the first one's from Fergus. He says, if in a bizarre set of circumstances you were forced to live with a professional rugby pe- rugby player, past or present. Who would you avoid at all costs? He puts in brackets, other than Austin Healy. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Austin thoughts? Healy. I actually, like, Austin Healy, just to give you a bit of info on Austin, like, everybody that I've spoken to, either working with or played against or played with, like, thought Austin Healy was a bit of an arsehole. But yeah. I, get on, I get on really well with him when I worked with him a couple of times. Uh, yeah. um, he, he was super sound. So who would I avoid at all costs? Um, he's probably Tom Court, who played okay. yes. for 10 years. Yeah. Number one. Number one, there wouldn't be any food uh, for me to eat. I've never seen a guy Big eat as much food. Like, I remember going, like, walking towards my bedroom, playing against Italy away, I think, in 2007, 2008, somewhere around then, um, Six Nations maybe 2009 and like walking past his room and there's a guy standing outside with the uh, room service like and you know two full-size pizzas a tin of red bull, a tin of red bull a pint glass of milk and tom opens the door and he's like hello my i'm like hey tom what's the crack? Are you hungry mate he's like, oh yeah my just keep the carbs in carb loading my carb loading i'm like Left when I am it, and he gets up the next day, has a huge breakfast, smashes the ten of red bull that he has, and then he's good to go. So, um, yeah, Tom Court would be no food. Um, he, he farted constantly, his farts were absolutely disgusting. Um, so, and he had no shame, he was one of those people that just let go, didn't matter where he was. And yeah. I can't have that. There's um, a good he was really messy. And lastly, <laughs> thirdly, he up. He always wore wife fronts everywhere he went. Like he had wife fronts. So yeah, he, there's, uh, a, there's a list of reasons. There. You went, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, the next one's awesome from Fergus. If James Haskell calls you out and asks you for an MMA fight, would you accept, and who would win? I'd absolutely. So he beat his bag in. <laughs> of course, he wouldn't stand. He wouldn't stand a chance. He wouldn't stand a chance. Um, I here look. You know, big James Haskell. I have a lot of respect for him. He's a brilliant guy for um, being able to self promote and mm. like he's. Uh, I think he wings it half the time. Well, I know yeah. he wings it half the time, um, but he's uh, he's a funny guy. He's good to listen yeah, to. Yeah. Hi. I. I wouldn't like to fight him because he's a he's a he's a tremendous athlete. Like yeah. serious, serious. Oh, um, people say he's jumping in the MMA. He probably will. Like it'll be the old one where uh, you know Freddie Flintoff. Like he gets put into the ring and he gets some guy that's just been dragged out of the bar to come in and fight him. Like you know <laughs> he will get something like that in his first fight or second fight. Yeah. But um, yeah, like there's no doubt he trains hard. Like he will train hard. He's a dedicated guy. So um, yeah. Um, I would love to see that fight, by the way. That would be amazing. Let's get that set up <laughs> for charity or something. <laughs> well, uh, Andy Powell says he's going to take him out. Andy Powell keeps calling him out on Twitter. So he does. Uh, I think Andy Powell will get his head knocked in because he's yeah, about 20 a day. So, uh, he's just he mad enough, though. Yeah, he was just 
keep keep pinned down for a round or two and then knock him out. Aye. He's unpredictable, which which could work in his favour definitely. Maybe a triple threat match anyway. But that's good. <laughs> I, I like I like your answer there. Immediate immediate response. You beat his bag in. <laughs> um, right. Last two questions. Yeah. Uh, Josh Shields asks if you really come up with the Ferris wheel pizza, at Green's Pizza. Yes, I did. Yes. And how did you, um, did you dream it up? Was it like, did you wake up oh, one night? it was strange. So, uh, Ryan Comstable, who's obviously worked a bit on BBC, he was my agent. I had, well, he still does a bit of stuff for me. Like, um, and I've been involved with, it used to be Corner Flag Management. Now, yeah. they've now merged into Esportif, which is doing really well. Yeah. Um, and Green's Pizza, you know, like for players, there's the Boozham deal, and then like Green's Pizza, like there's 50% off or 60%. 50-40% off whatever it is and then there was a few other places like you go and get your hair cut for free here and you can go and get you know 50% off donuts and all this carry on and then yeah. Green's Pizza came up and Ryan says Stevie would you go in and do like you know make your own pizza kind of thing and you know a bit of PR we'll get John Dixon in the official rugby photographer do a few videos put it up on the social media shebang here we go he says yeah no problem so I went in and then uh, John, I think it was actually John Dixon said to me, he says, oh, what are you doing? I was like, I'm doing a half and half pizza. He says, oh, yeah, what are you going to call it? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And he's like, Ferris wheel would be good. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah that would be actually really good. Like, And then they put it on their menu, and apparently it's been the best selling pizza for like the last six years. Like, <laughs> uh, and I haven't received a penny. I'm not I'm one penny. Oh, that's, uh, that's ridiculous. I'm partly I responsible for it. that. That's my go-to. I would call in Dan again and um, and see the owner William. He's a good yeah. good lad. So yeah, him, him, William and the other guy who owned it. I think they ended up parting ways, but Will, they're still friends. No, I think William is uh, is looking after them all. But I pop in and see him a couple of times a year. Uh, yeah, get a feed. Amazing. Um, not hard to beat though. Greens Pizza. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Love it. So Josh, hopefully that satisfies your uh, satisfies the question. Final question. Best player you've played with or against? Um, yeah, I've played against a good few. I get asked this all the time. And I'm going to be honest with you. I change my answer regularly. Um, so, like, if you had asked me last week, it might have been slightly different to this yeah. week. Um, I say 50 or 60% of the time, I would say Paul O'Connell, um, yeah. just because he was such a competitor. Um, he probably wasn't blessed in terms of his skill set. He was, you know, somebody who worked so, so hard yeah. on trying to make himself better. Um, even seeing him on the Late Late Show recently, he was saying about having purpose in his life. And that's something that he's, he's retired, what, four years now? Five years? Yeah, uh, yeah four years. So, like, he's, he's still thriving and he needs that purpose in his life. He turned 40 there just recently. Um, and he always had that whole way throughout his career. And I think I learned a lot off him. Um, he yeah. kept me a few steps and knocked me back in the line a few times. Yeah, uh, yeah, and probably brought my game on a lot more than I actually realised at the time. Uh, just probably on reflection now. So yeah, Paul O'Connell probably the best that I played with, played against. I would have to say Jerome Kano, who played for played six for New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. and he's yeah. still playing number eight for Toulouse. So yeah, he's uh, he, he's a hard hard nut um, and somebody again. There's this mutual respect. Um, I sort of got not chatting to him. Well, I did, yeah, texting and that type of thing through Big Nick Williams, 
who's yeah. a friend of his, a really close friend of his, um, and Sonny Bill and, and, and those lads. So I kind of grew around that circle a little bit. And then when I went traveling, I tried to catch up with Jerome Kino. Uh, it just didn't work out, but we still follow each other on Twitter and social media yeah. and it's really odd we do one another and you know, messy too. Um, yeah, but he was hard as nails. I remember running into him. It was like running into a, a brick wall. Like, well, no, not a brick wall, a steel wall. <laughs> it was <laughs> yeah. so hard. Actually bounced back off it. Um, yeah, so he, he was an absolute beast. Uh, it's good there's mutual respect because you're probably both competing for the best six in the world for a few years there. So um, you both have that respect for each other. That's cool to hear. Well, thanks, for, thanks for the kind words there. <laughs> It's true, it's true. Um, but uh, yeah, here, Fez, you're a legend. Thanks so much no for worries. your time. Um, really right, appreciate no appreciate it. No worries. I'm going to get back on the dartboard here. I have a friend who's ringing me. We're going to have a, a glass of wine this evening. Uh, nice. Get on house party. Get on the house party app and throw a few arrows. So I'll put nice. it on. Thanks, thanks a Amazing. Amazing. Here, good to speak to you. Thanks again. No Thank you.